You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. For a few weeks this spring, something rather unusual happened. We at Bloomberg realised we were actually forecasting that growth was going to be slightly higher in the US this year than in China for the first time since the mid-1970s. Well, the numbers have changed a bit since then. Growth in the US is looking a bit slower and China slightly stronger. But it was a reminder that China's entering a challenging new phase in its economic development, one that's been made even more challenging by COVID and arguably by the increasing power of President Xi Jinping. We're going to spend most of today's podcast on that subject, talking to chief economist Tom Orlick about the deep-seated weaknesses in China's system that have come to the surface in the past two years, and hearing from the graduates entering the Chinese labour market who are reading Karl Marx and insisting they do not, in fact, want to be capitalists. But first, I just wanted to share with you a few minutes of a conversation I had this week with Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor for the UK Opposition Labour Party. You might wonder why on earth I would bother to share this with you when all the action in the UK, surely, has been in the battle to dethrone and now replace Prime Minister Boris Johnson. But at a time of high inflation on both sides of the Atlantic, the question of what is a reasonable pay rise for workers is pretty fundamental. And as you'll hear, it is not an easy one for politicians to answer. Can I just start by asking you what seems to me quite a sort of basic question that any certainly any centre-left party needs to answer in the environment that we find ourselves, which is, you know, what's the higher priority for you? Taming inflation, which hurts households, poorer households the worst, or restoring public services and giving teachers and doctors and others a decent pay rise? What do you think has to come first? Right now, we've obviously got to address the cost of living crisis, which is why since the start of the year, I've been arguing for a windfall tax to uh, put money in the pockets of, of people who are struggling with those higher bills. And, and that is the immediate uh, priority because people can't wait for that help with their energy bills, with the rising food prices, with the rising price of petrol to fill up their car. But then everything else, really, whether it is um, better wages for public sector workers, more investments in our public services, or improving people's living standards, it all comes down to economic growth. When you have low growth, it means you don't have the money to invest in public services. You always have to raise taxes any time you want to do anything because you're not getting those proceeds of, of, of growth. And so ultimately, 
everything you want to do, whether it is improving our public services, uh, improving living standards, or, or lifting all parts of the country to, uh, to, to, to share in prosperity, has got to come through a plan for growth. But growth is really important, but right now, what would be a reasonable pay rise for teachers and indeed ordinary workers across the country? What do you think would be a sensible, would be a responsible course for you as Chancellor to support? Well, the pay review bodies at the moment are in negotiations and it wouldn't be right, whether you're in government or in opposition, to cut across that uh, process and I, I don't um, uh, intend to do so. But the truth is you're not going to be able to improve public services, including the wages being paid to public servants, who certainly deserve a, a, a pay rise, you're not going to be able to get any of those things on a sustainable basis unless you are growing the e economy. And, and that is the truth of it, which is why my focus is on how we can get growth and productivity off the floor so we can then bring in the tax revenues to invest in the public services that you speak about. And I'm just coming back to this because you're, you're, you're an economist and it's quite important to sort of work out what we think about this inflation. The higher cost of, of imported food and energy has made us poorer as a nation. It's a hit to all of our standard of living, a permanent hit. And all you can hope to do is at the margin affect the short-term distribution of that hit um, and certainly potentially affect the timing of that hit because you can, you can kick the can down the road, if you like, with, with matching wage increases, but at the cost potentially of setting off another round of inflation. Do you accept yeah. that there's been a permanent hit to our living standards? Whatever we manage to do about growth in the next five or six years with an amazing new plan, and what's the responsible way to respond to that? So you're absolutely right that this has a, a hit and it's up to then governments how they respond and ensure, it, it, under my plans, that it would be the lower income people who are struggling most with the rising cost of living would get um, the, 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 the most help. So I think that's what you best can do uh, distribu distributionally. The Governor of the Bank of England has specifically said he's, well, he's certainly nervous mm about wage growth that's going beyond 5% mm -hmm. across the economy, because anything above, say, 3.5% would clearly be inflationary. Yeah. And I wonder, do you yeah. think he's right in making that assessment? Well, let's look at where the wage growth is happening. So wage growth in the top 1% is 20 times higher than wage growth for the bottom 10%, and four or five times higher than for those in the middle. And wage growth in the private sector is running at something like four or five times higher than wage growth in the public sector. So um, I, I, I don't think the Bank of England have suggested this, but I think the government would quite like to suggest this, that somehow um, ordinary working people, and particularly those in the public sector, are somehow responsible for this I inflation shock and, uh, and, 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 and sustained levels of high inflation. It's just a fallacy. And the people who are getting the biggest pay rises are those at the top of the income distribution who are least affected by the rise of inflation. So if restraint is needed anywhere, it is restraint at the top. The public's been very supportive to date of uh, Ukraine and our very muscular support of Ukraine. If the polls started to suggest that with another round of massive energy price rises, that the public was actually starting to blame the war for these cost-soaring prices and was actually starting to sort of wane in its support for Ukraine. Would that affect in any way what you thought was the right thing to do for the British government? I think the, the biggest risk is if Vladimir Putin thinks that his behaviour and his aggression in Ukraine and elsewhere goes unchecked. That's what happened, unfortunately, after his invasion in Crimea. We can't let it happen again because he won't stop 
at Ukraine. We all know that. Uh, I don't think that the support of the British people will wane. I think the support given not just by uh, politicians, but even more so by the whole country for Ukraine has been uh, an amazing outpouring. Um, but ultimately, when it comes to the sort of defence and security realities, the most important thing is Vladimir Putin knows that he can't get away with this because that will put us in greater danger in the future. Okay, so I apologise. We do seem to have ended up with Vladimir Putin instead of long-term growth. But thank you very much, Rachel Reeves. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Now we hear a lot about the struggles of Gen Z in the US and Europe. Young people starting out who might struggle to have the same quality of life as their parents. Now we don't hear so much about the young people now entering the workforce in China, but it turns out they are making very different early career choices than their parents did choices which could tell us a lot about the future of China's economy. Here's Bloomberg's senior China economy reporter, Tom Hancock, in Hong Kong. This is a live job fair on Kuaishou, a Chinese video platform similar to TikTok that's generally used by young people to share amusing short videos. What you're hearing is a recruiter responding to job seekers in a live stream chat. She gathers key information from them like age and gender and tosses back potential job opportunities based on their situation. There are about 100 people in the chat and the hiring agency told us that many of them are students looking for jobs over the summer break. But there are barely any matches. China's young generation is the best educated in the country's history, and that was expected to help them land better jobs and push China's economy to a more innovative future. But instead, an estimated 14 million Chinese young people are currently jobless. Making things worse, more than 12 million fresh graduates will flood the labor market this year. Because of the pandemic and Beijing's hardline approach to controlling it, China's youth jobless rate is likely to be pushed to 20%. That's about double what it was before the pandemic. To find out how young people are coping, we spoke to graduate students across China. Many are anxious about their future and are lowering their expectations. They're seeking safety in public sector jobs, 
rather than positions in private companies, which have generally paid higher wages. This is Xu Chaochun. He's a 22-year-old visual art major who's been unsuccessfully job hunting for months. His dream job? A state-owned enterprise managed by the central government. Under COVID, jobs at many private companies are not secure. State-owned companies are much more stable in comparison. That's why I wanted to be with them. In addition, state-owned companies also have better subsidies and benefits in terms of housing and daily expenses than private firms. Xu's preference for state-owned companies is widespread. In a recent survey, nearly 40% of graduates said state-owned enterprises were their top choice. That's up from just 25% in 2017. On the other hand, interest in private and international companies took a dive. Only 30% said those are their top priority. Meet K. Lo, a postgraduate with a master's degree in law from Tsinghua University, basically China's equivalent of MIT. After doing internships at a law firm, an internet giant, a securities brokerage, and a court, Kay eventually had a change of heart. She took an offer to work in the government. When I first started my graduate program, I was averse to jobs that are quote-unquote within the system. I thought civil servants' jobs were really boring and you could almost predict what you'd be doing in the next five decades. But over the past three years, I've gone through a lot and changed a lot. The pandemic has made everyone prioritize stability in jobs. Civil servants are among the most stable jobs, and that's definitely one of my considerations. China's Communist Party and President Xi Jinping might be relieved that unemployed youth are trying to join the government rather than overthrow it. But Xi did express his concerns at a rare appearance at a university last month. According to state media, Xi cautioned the students that to get rich and famous overnight is unrealistic. He asked the students to be down to earth and to be willing to lower their expectations. However, preference for the public sector is not just about market forces. It's also about ideology. Speaking of her previous internship at a law firm, Kay said the job felt meaningless because she felt she was just, quote, working for some capitalists. After I read Marx, I became increasingly opposed to capitalists' pursuit of wealth. I chose to become a civil servant at the end, because that way I will at least get a sense of self-accomplishment. I will be serving the people and contributing to my motherland. But as a result of this shift, competition for jobs has become a lot more fierce. For some positions, there are as many as 200 applicants for a single government post. That's an acceptance rate of 0.5%. On top of all that, applicants in general are overqualified. A study published last year found that half of job seekers have a bachelor's degree, 
but only 20% of jobs require them. But even with high unemployment, manufacturers still say they're having trouble recruiting. Here's Lu Feng, a professor of economics at Peking University. Ten years ago, a lot of people of the in their age will go to the huge factories. But now, I think uh, uh, these young people, they have the high education already. They just don't want to do that anymore. And the manufacturing sector, actually, they still need a lot of employees. But uh, the, the salary they can offer not attractive enough. So that is the sort of the friction with the match problem. Uh, it is it is huge in this country. To make things worse, China's rapid urbanization has helped to widen the mismatch in the labor market. In the past decades, China's 280 million migrant workers acted as a shock absorber for the economy. They returned to their homes to do agricultural labor when the economy slowed and came back to the cities when the markets needed them. But now there's a shift of attitude. Younger migrants, who are less likely to be university educated, tend to stay put when the economy slows. Because a lot of them, even now, are raised in the rural area. So even they don't have an urban household registration, they regarded themselves as urban people. That means the constraints for the government has changed substantially in this regard. It's more tough than the Beijing knows that the state sector isn't large enough to solve the unemployment problem. It needs private companies to start hiring again. But the private sector will only really get hiring if growth returns. That depends mainly on China's ability to avoid further COVID lockdowns this year. In addition, the private sector's confidence has been bruised by the slump in China's real estate industry, the almost complete closure of private tutoring businesses, and a regulatory crackdown on the tech sector. It's clear that China's unemployment problem isn't going to be solved anytime soon. In the meantime, China's young people are lowering their pay expectations and seeking jobs in state-owned companies, which are generally less innovative than the private sector. As a result, there could be a negative impact on the world's second largest economy for decades to come. In Hong Kong, I'm Tom Hancock for Bloomberg News. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY.
Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So I thought that piece gave us an opportunity to talk to our chief economist, Tom Orlick, who spent 11 years thinking and writing about China's economy while living in Beijing. That and the fact that the paperback edition of his book on that subject is just about to come out in the US. So, Tom, we can get to the book plug and the big economic challenges facing China in just a minute. But but first, I just wondered what your reaction was to that evidence in that piece that China's graduates are turning to Marx, but also very much to the public sector for work. I mean, as an economist, it doesn't sound like good news for the flexibility of the economy if they're not wanting to go to the private sector, especially given that state-owned enterprises can be the least productive. I think that's right, Stephanie. Let's be clear, um, there's nothing wrong with wanting to go into the public sector. Here in America, many of the best and brightest want to make a career at the Treasury or the Federal Reserve or other bits of the US government because they want to make a contribution. Um, I think what's troubling in the report we just heard from Tom Hancock is that in China, it's something more than that, right? It's not just the desire to make a contribution. It's also the entrenched view that the state sector and the public sector is stable and the private sector is risky, unstable and not a good place to build a career. Um, And I think what that speaks to is some of the structural costs of the big policies which Xi Jinping has introduced in the last two years. Covid zero. Well, it's easy enough to deal with Covid zero if you're a massive state owned enterprise much harder to deal with an on-off economy if you're a small business, let alone a startup. And of course, the common prosperity agenda, Xi's attempt to engineer a more equal society, has ended up hammering the outlook for big private companies like Alibaba and Tencent. Now, if you put those pieces together and you listen to Tom's report, it's clear that young people are starting to get the message. They want to go to the state sector, not the private sector. That's bad news for China's productivity growth, bad news for China's long-term development prospects. People listening might wonder why you'd singled out a career at the Treasury as a productive example of the state sector and perhaps need to know that you used to work in the UK Treasury and I indeed spent some time in the US Treasury. But that, that aside... What you just said sort of takes us back to something which I think we have talked about before, which is when we looked at the end of the first year of the COVID pandemic in 2020, China looked really good. It was the only economy that had managed to grow. Its its strategy of, of, of locking down the disease looked um, quite robust. It now clearly looks much less clever. Um, but how's our view of China more broadly evolved in these two years? So I think COVID-19 is is primarily a human tragedy, um, but it is also a stress test for governance, financial and economic systems. Um, As you mentioned, if we looked at China uh, at the end of 2021, Chinese performance through the COVID stress test was looking remarkably robust. From where we are in the middle of 2022, uh, the picture looks, I think, much less positive. Um, Omicron has tested China's COVID zero strategy and exposed some of the big problems there with Shanghai, Beijing, other big Chinese cities spending big chunks of the year under lockdown. 
a Chinese economy which has ground to a halt for substantial periods of time has also revealed some of the weaknesses which have been hiding in plain sight. Things like the real estate sector, where we've had sales drying up, prices stagnating, and as a consequence, real estate developers getting into huge trouble in their capacity to repay their debts. Um, and of course, China's international standing has taken a beating as well. I'm sure many Stephanomics listeners have seen that Pew survey, which shows unfavorable views of China rocketing up here in the United States, in Europe, and also in Asia as well. And for a country that which does so much of its business overseas, growing by exporting, growing by learning technologies, or if we're being less charitable, stealing technologies from the rest of the world, that rocketing up in unfavorable views of China, that's bad news for long-term growth as well. It often looks sort of tempting to have very centralised control of the country, especially if it's if most of the levers are in the hands of one man. Uh, you know, it's attractive to think, oh, you can pull levers and you can get things done and be effective short term. But long term, we like to think anyway, there's a, a, a an effect of, of lowering standards, reducing the quality of governance. So is that what we're, is that what we're seeing, that kind of de- de- negative effect on governance? So one of the concerns about Xi Jinping is that he's going to break China's governance system. Deng Xiaoping, China's great reformer, is noted for opening up the economy. But the other thing he did was reform China's governance system and introduce the two-term limit for leaders. That two-term limit was observed by um, Hu Jintao and by Jiang Zemin. Um, Very likely, it is not going to be observed by Xi Jinping. Um, And the concern that brings is that, well, if we look around the world at countries which have a single-party system and a leader who's in charge for too long... um, that can come at some really, really serious costs in terms of governance quality. That's what happened in China under Chairman Mao. Uh, That's what happened in Russia under Vladimir Putin. Um, Now, if we think about China's COVID zero strategy and the kind of debate over when that is going to end, the message you hear most consistently from China watchers is, well, COVID zero can't end until Xi Jinping has secured his third term as president of China and general secretary of the Communist Party. Um, And what that suggests to me is that some of that dictator decline in governance standards is already with us. And a matter of huge national importance touching the lives of all of China's 1.4 billion people uh, is being settled not entirely in the national interest, but rather in the interests of a sort of rather narrow uh, political decision. We've had years of thinking the big risk we had to worry about with China was going to come from the financial sector, the bubble in the property market, the debts in the banking system. But it sounds like that's just a symptom, potentially, of a, a broken growth model. Is that overstating it? I'm not sure the growth model is broken quite yet. Stephanie. China's GDP per capita is still around a third of the level in the United States. Um, And what that means is that the growth model for China doesn't have to be around innovation. It can, for the foreseeable future, be about 
learning, copying, stealing foreign technologies. And if that's your growth model, then you don't actually need the same kind of liberty and individual choice and dynamism that you have when you're trying to push back the technology frontier. Um, so I don't think the growth model is broken, um, but I do think that the COVID crisis is exposing some of the cracks, some of the cracks in governance, some of the stresses in the financial sector and the real estate sector. And you talked about China's sort of decline in sort of public opinion polls. That's more than reflected, I think, in elite opinion in Europe and the US. You know, every gathering that I am in of, of policymakers or foreign policy thinkers is all the talk is of a return to a, a new Cold War between the US and China or potentially the US and Europe and China. Um, we had years in the old Cold War of overestimating the strength of the Soviet Union. Do you think we're under or overestimating China's economic power? So look, um, there, are, there are persistent concerns about the quality of China's economic data. Uh, in particular, there are persistent and, in my view, well-founded concerns that GDP is smoothed and massaged for political purposes. And if we stripped that out of the calculation on how big China's economy is and we stacked them up against the United States, well, what it would tell us is that China is still further behind, is still some way behind the United States and is catching up more slowly than the official data suggest. So on that basis, yes, I think there is a possibility that we are overstating China's economic strength. At the same time, if we think about China's longer term trajectory, we're talking about an economy of 1.4 billion people, an economy where GDP per capita is still a third of the level in the United States, which means very substantial room to grow productivity, not by innovating or doing anything particularly complicated or fancy, just by absorbing the technologies which are already being used here in the US and in Japan and in Korea and in Europe. And if we think about Beijing, well, Beijing does a bunch of stuff that we don't really like, does a bunch of stuff we don't really like in Hong Kong, a bunch of stuff we don't really like in Xinjiang. But one thing they demonstrably do really, really well is develop the economy. Um, so I think the kind of the short answer to your question is, are we underestimating China's economic strength? Well, yes and no. The longer answer is, we might well be overestimating how big their economy is right now, but it would be a big mistake for us to underestimate how big they will likely become in the next 10 or 20 years. We've run out of time, but I just had one final question, which is, where can I go for a smart and super readable introduction to China's economic challenges and how it may yet overcome them? Well, I'm delighted you asked that question, Stephanie. Uh, the second edition of my book, China the Bubble That Never Pops, uh, is being published by Oxford University Press uh, later in August. Um, if you rush out and buy it immediately, you may get it before the bubble pops and my main conclusions are disproved. And we should say it has been well-reviewed by many major media organisations that are not Bloomberg. Um, thank you very much, Tom Orlick.
that's it for this episode of Stephanomics. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, do please rate the show if you like it and check out the Bloomberg News website for more economic news and views on the global economy. You can also follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Summer Sadi and Yong Yong. The story from China was reported by Eugene Liu and Tom Hancock. Special thanks also to Tom Warlick, Labour Party Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves and the Resolution Foundation in London. Mike Sasser is the executive producer of Stephanomics. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.